Are you pregnant or a new mother steering parenthood? Pregnancy and birth of a baby is a life-changing event, an event which will make you happy, weepy, frustrated, joyous, and exasperated all at once. Hi, welcome to my podcast, Baby Ahoy. I'm your host, birth coach and expert, Chitra Natarajan. I'm a birth enthusiast who loves drinking cups of chai, taking long walks in the woods, and all things interiors in equal measure. I will be talking to an interviewee every other week to discuss birthing experiences, coping with the new role of being a parent, and other valuable topics to help you navigate parenthood. This journey is bumpy, but certainly blissful. Join me from wherever you are for a fun conversation. Hi everyone, welcome to today's episode. Uh, today's conversation is with Vasya. Uh, Vasya is a Greek expat living in Leuven in Belgium. Um, Vasya and I um, met up in 2020 uh, during the pandemic when she was pregnant with her uh, second baby boy. But today's episode is about Vasya's first pregnancy and a difficult, traumatic birth story. We talk about the first pregnancy, how birth story can actually change sometimes and change the course of how you feel um, after you've given birth. She was so um, traumatized with her first birthing experience that she wanted to prepare herself better um, to change the narrative of her second birth experience. Um, So her second birth story um, is a truly empowering one and um, I will release a second episode on the 15th of March. But today's birth story is about her first pregnancy. I want all of you to actually read through the show notes before you start listening to the birth story because some of the conversations around trauma can be triggering for some people who've experienced it. So please read through the show notes before you actually start listening to the story. Anyway, thank you very much for all your support. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm Vasya. I am a Greek expat living in Belgium for the last nine years. And I first came to Belgium in 2012 to do my master's degree. And I met my husband and never left. (laughs) And here I am nine years later. Yes, so Belgium now is home. So, yes, I have a bachelor's degree in in primary education. Back in the days... In, when I graduated from, from my bachelor's in 2012, crisis was really going on in Greece, so a deep uh, financial crisis. And I was looking to expand my horizons and to find a good master's degree, when I say good quality-wise, um, in a research-based university. Uh, in Greece, unfortunately, we don't have that many research-based universities, so I chose KU Leuven. Uh, in Belgium, um, because tuition fees were pretty cheap, and education was, uh, you know, one of the best in the world. So I came to Leuven to study, and never left. <laughs> Still in Leuven. <laughs> Wonderful. So you came for your masters, but I also know that you're also a PhD researcher. So could you right. also share what exactly you do? Yes, currently I'm a PhD researcher. Um, I'm doing research in uh, medical education and specifically in GP uh, training. Um, but I have been working as a research assistant for the last five years. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm 
practically a researcher at the university. <laughs> sure, sure. So when you say the research on medical education, I'm, you know, on GPs, I'm really curious. So are you actually, you know, researching on the medical education part of GPs only in Belgium? Or are you also doing some sort of a comparative study? So we uh, kind of, so the GP training has a lot of similarities between the Netherlands and Belgium. And when we want to implement a change, we uh, see how the neighbors are doing. So the Dutch people are doing, and we try to implement it here. <laughs> Luckily for you guys, for the Dutch people, GP training is really, it's really good in the Netherlands. So practically my PhD project is to implement an assessment model invented by um, Maastricht University, by a Dutch researcher, to see if it works um, in Belgium as well. Uh, so, yes. <laughs> yes, you're still doing your research. Wonderful, wonderful. You should probably come back and talk to us a little bit more about your findings at later point in time once you get your yeah. PhD. <laughs> yeah, well, that would be interesting. Actually, you know what's interesting in the project? It's that we are a multidisciplinary team so I'm doing research in GP training, but I have colleagues that they do research in pediatrics, gynecology, midwifery. So we we have an expanded exactly we have we have an expanded uh, area of expertise and a lot of health professionals. Sure, sure. So coming from that background, I mean, there is relevance to why I was actually trying to ask you this because when you got in touch with me last year, um, that was for your second pregnancy. Um, you have a background of how the medical system sort of works in the, you know, in Belgium and also in the Netherlands. And um, so I know I, you know, I want you to share, you know, both your birth stories for the baby, you know, your, the birth of Nicholas and also the birth of Byron. Um, but I wanted to understand that, you know, having this understanding of how the medical world works in Belgium, um, what went on with your first pregnancies? Can you just sort of share what went on and when did you and Kuhn, your partner, you decided to sort of have a family? Um, and how was your pregnancy? Did you go to your midwife or did you go to your GP? Um, how did it all sort of pan out? I know the story, but I want you to sort of share it with everybody. <laughs> so, yes, in 2017, we were planning on getting married and we hesitantly started talking about having children. So after our wedding in August, we thought, okay, now it's the time, you know, to have a first baby. It took us a while, I think five, six months until I became pregnant. And in April 2018, I got the first positive pregnancy test. Although I had been working for a year in in the world of doctors, let's say, in medical education, I wasn't really acquainted with the maternity care system. And... Unfortunately, I relied on the knowledge of other people. So when I became pregnant, I would ask relatives how they went on with their pregnancies. And uh, they would all tell me stories, you know, I got a pregnancy test, I called the hospital, they booked me an appointment. So they all had, <laughs> let's say, medicalized or more hospital center um Care. Right, right. Um, could you also sort of explain, um, because you are also from Greece and how that system is versus what happens in Belgium and your understanding of both the systems, if you can. So in, <laughs> in Greece, in Belgium, I, I wouldn't say that the system is really highly medicalized because if you know your choices, there are choices that you can make. 
um, and you can have a midwifery uh, center care, maternity care, but you have to know your choices. In Greece, these choices, uh, let's say, midwives are not that common to have. And if, you, if these are choices that women now increasingly make, but the majority, let's say, I, I don't, I don't want to put a number on it, but if I could, I would say ninety percent of pregnant people would go to a gynecologist and would trust a doctor for uh, their pregnancy. And also comparing, for example, the number of ultrasounds that birth a pregnant person has to undertake here and in Greece, I would say in Greece it's once per month that you have an ultrasound. In Belgium, it's uh, only three obligatory ultrasounds that you, yes, exactly, maximum four if you want to. Um, but uh, it's really restricted the number of ultrasounds that you you like your insurance will cover. Of course, if you feel insecure or if you're having an, a high risk pregnancy, medical care is always there, always available. But for low risk pregnancies, this is the standard. Right. Uh, so I'm coming from a really uh, <laughs> medicalized, let's say, country um, where pregnancy is viewed as as a disease or like you are you're viewed as a patient from the moment that you are pregnant listening to the stories of other um, mothers um, and how they approach the pregnancy it Mm. didn't it was familiar to me so I didn't Mm. question it (laughs) I didn't question how they progressed with their pregnancy and um it was only, I don't remember, I had already two appointments at the hospital, so I had a day to ultrasound at week 8, and then at week uh, 12, uh, and then it was only at week 17, where, actually, parenthesis, my hospital gave me a plan, and it was saying, week uh, 12, for example, appointment at the hospital, to week 17, appointment at your GP. So I went to my GP, because this is what the plan was saying. <laughs> right, right. And my GP said, but you're pregnant. You don't need to see me. You need a midwife. Right. And I was like, I didn't even know that I could have a midwife. And fortunately, she was collaborating with a midwifery practice and she referred me to the midwife. And this is how I found my midwife. (laughs) Right. Great. Great. See, but that's what it is, right? See, until there is a, a moment in your life where you are really looking into the process of, you know, whether it is, a you know, whether I'd like to go to a midwife or OBGYN, that comes only after you become pregnant. So exactly. until that point, you're probably as much as you're doing your, med, you know, research in the medical field, you might not have had a moment to think about it, you know, so I completely understand. Exactly. And I'm also very glad that your GP was actually collaborating with someone else. And then she said, go and actually see this person. Yes, yeah. me too. I'm really, yeah. really glad. Yeah, because if so, you're a low-risk person, then, you know, you're, if you're having low-risk pregnancy and if you're a low-risk birthing person, then you don't necessarily have to actually go to an OBGYN. You can actually exactly. go to a midwife because they are trained to help you to take care of you prenatally during your whole pregnancy and then to be there with you at birth. But I think there's a bit of a catch there in Belgium. The yes, is there is a catch there. Yes. <laughs> so although, you know, you have the choice of midwifery, uh, central maternity, of, let's say, uh, pregnancy care, mm-hmm. it's not necessary or your midwife is not always allowed to be with you during labor, especially if you want to deliver at the hospital. So 
that's very fascinating for me because you know yes, you it sort is, of right? that yeah because if you are we are not that far <laughs> yeah then it means that you would expect that the midwife will actually be with you whether it is at home or whether you're giving birth in the birthing center or the hospital i don't know whether the concept of birthing center ex- you know exists in belgium no I it doesn't so it means that you have to be in the hospital so it means yes. that your midwife can't actually go with you to the hospital to help you give birth is that so so what happens is that there are different midwife uh, practices mm-hmm. not all of them have the same policies so there are midwife practices right. that you know can offer you this possibility you okay. that the midwife can come with you to the hospital but mm-hmm. then if you choose to deliver at the hospital they play the role of the doula mm. so they're there to support you they cannot Uh, make medical decisions for your uh, delivery baby labor or for yourself yeah. they're there for your psychological support okay emotional all... and psychological support only okay. yes yeah if you if you choose to deliver at home mm-hmm. then the midwife is there and she is entitled to make to make medical decisions of course about your labor and your baby right but once there is transfer of care to the hospital setting then a gynecologist will become responsible for right. um, for your delivery. Okay. Uh, of course there are midwives at the hospital as well, but they are um I think as in the Netherlands also there is um there are midwives that they are uh, working in primary care. So they will see you prenatally and postnatally. Uh, and there are midwives that they work at the hostel at secondary tertiary um line of care so it's different it's a different setting where they work um so if you choose a practice that these midwives cannot come with you at the hostel they cannot support you during labor even at home they cannot support you if you choose to labor at home they cannot be there they are not allowed to so there are specific services that midwife uh, practices can offer and this is really difficult for for an expert to decipher because it's really it's really complicated it's a bit fascinating because for me uh, you know practicing in the netherlands as a birth educator you know we usually say that you know if you fall under lotus pregnancy then you go to a midwife you know in your local neighborhood and you know she or somebody from the practice would actually be there to help and support the mother to give birth um whether you know it doesn't have to be only home birth it could be the birthing center or the hospital and that's definitely a possibility so for me to understand this was a bit um yeah it was eye opening thank you for sharing and i would like i remembered yesterday uh, there is a link that you can see the different uh, services that the practices can offer i think it's find my a midwife find a brutfrau okay find i will send okay. you the link so maybe you can share it yes absolutely in the yes. show notes i'll go ahead and share yes. it so you put your postcode and you can see the midwife practice is available and based on what you want from your midwife you can see what they offer so for example you want uh, somebody to guide you through laboring at home you can find the midwife uh for this you want somebody only prenatally postnatally etc and for example a lot of people don't even know that even preconception you can see a midwife in belgium as well so they can offer you this but most of the times if you're having difficulties conceiving you go to a doctor but the Correct. midwife can help you as well 
Um, if you think about, you know, your care when it came to your first mm-hmm. pregnancy, you know, with the birth of your baby, baby Nicholas, who's almost three now. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, so how was it for you? So did you go to then? So you started continuing to, um, you know, do your prenatal visit with your midwife until a point where you went into labor and then you went into the hospital. Am I right? So I, I would see my midwife. Um, practically interchangeably with my gynecologist. So practically, uh, I started seeing my midwife at 13 weeks and yeah. then I would have, uh, you know, the next ultrasound at 20, 21 weeks with the gynecologist at the hospital, then again yeah. midwife. And um, in Belgium also, you are supposed to do the the sugar test for, for pregnancy diabetes. Diabetes, yeah. Yes. And uh, then I would have another ultrasound at week 32. Mm-hmm. So interchangeably, I would have the, the, the care would transfer from the hospital to the midwife and, and et cetera. But there was definitely some sort of an understanding then, right? So you, at one point, you would go to the midwife and then your yes. OBGYN yes. would go so, and your gynecologist so would know that exactly. you're doing Exactly. When I inscribed um, at the hostel that I chose to, to deliver, mm-hmm. they gave me a plan. So practically they were saying this week you need an appointment at the hospital, this week you need an appointment with the midwife or your GP. So I would follow this plan and according to this plan I would move, I would proceed uh, throughout my pregnancy. Okay. Um, but I loved appointments with my midwife, you know, sure. they would they, they would last for an hour and it would be more about how it was going with me as a pregnant person and not really how it's going with the baby. <laughs> You know, I wasn't seen only as a vessel. Correct. I wasn't seen only as a vessel that carries a baby. Exactly. She would ask me or we would talk about, I had no idea about pregnancy, hypnobirthing, <laughs> all this birthing world. And she she actually gave me the tools and yeah, brought me into this world. She started talking about meditation, hypnobirthing and, and mechanisms to cope with laboring pain, etc. Right. We would talk about this after a point as the, my labor uh, my due date would uh, approach we would talk mm-hmm. about all this stuff and she actually gave me the passion that you know an unmedicated natural birth is possible mm. I had never imagined this and she would transfer the passion to me and I was I was really fascinated <laughs> Uh, but until then, I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. So she was definitely one of your probably motivators to sort of look into the alternate. Exactly. Board, you know, what else can you do to prepare and she, yourself? She better? actually gave me gave me the idea and to make me realize that I have choices. I have yeah. options here. It's not yeah. one way. Yeah. So she gave me the choices and she said, look, you, you can make this choice. If you want to go medicated, you can. If you want to go unmedicated, you also can. So for me, this was really important. It wasn't, you know, one policy fits all. Correct, correct. So definitely empowering. Yes, definitely empowering. I would see my midwife and uh, we would talk about hypnobirthing, but I was too late. <laughs> to book a course unfortunately mm-hmm. so I tried to self-educate myself by reading mm-hmm. some books mm-hmm. uh, I had downloaded some tracks that I was trying to to work with etc so I wasn't totally unfamiliar with the idea of uh, self-hypnosis and hypnobirthing and uh, I remember now it was the last because I was my due date was 1st of January 2019 
So that means that I would deliver probably during Christmas vacation and my gynecologist uh, was on holidays. I remember my last appointment with my gynecologist where I brought up my birth plan. Right. And he said, oh, but we don't need to discuss it. And I was thinking, with whom? Like, who is attending my birth? With whom am I supposed to discuss exactly. my discuss birth this. plan? Yeah, yeah. Yes, and he he implied, uh, I was talking to him about going unmedicated, etc. And he said something implying that, you know, you deliver, you're going to deliver in a hospital setting. You are not supposed totally or like totally natural. You should expect some interventions. But being an expat and being 36 weeks pregnant... <laughs> Yeah, I didn't know that I had choices. You know, I didn't know even that I could change the hospital. You could do that. And so all, <laughs> besides, I, I kind of panicked, but I thought, okay, I will be fine. Mm. Uh, so I went on and I trusted the hospital um, where I eventually also delivered my baby there. I remember one of the last appointments uh, with my midwife. We were talking about, you know, episiotomies. And she kind of mm. trying to warn me that this has become a standard practice in, in, in the hospitals of my area. Right. So it would be highly possible that I would be given one. She was trying to, to, to warn me about this. Yeah. So what I'm actually sort of hearing is that this was, again, not too long ago with your first birth, where as much as, you know, you can go to the hospital, you know, an appointment with the gynecologist and with the midwife, if you are going to give birth in the hospital, then the understanding is that there might be interventions. You just have to say, yes, you can't say no, we don't have much of a choice. So basically, they're telling you that this is what we do. You either take it or leave it, that sort of a thing. You don't really have yes, a choice. Yes, actually, it was, not, it was not about having choices. It was about interventions will happen. It wasn't about you can choose. It was more about they will happen. You just have to accept it. <laughs> yeah. And how was that for you? Because when you sort of, you know, had that experience, because I know why you wanted to have a different experience with the second time yes. you know, when you were pregnant. So, with you know, coming, coming from a country <laughs> uh, where labors and delivers of, of, uh, of babies is... Increasingly medicalized. I mean, C-sections in Greece are almost the norm, I, I dare to say. I thought that, you know, these interventions are supposed to happen during labor. I didn't know hmm. that I could I could go otherwise or, you know, hmm. I had I had the choice about my body. So I would hear from other friends of mine in Greece and also from, from other relatives here in Belgium that they are Belgians, that these interventions happened to them and they had no problem. And was fine. Um, and I, I would assume that this is this is the norm. Normal. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Exactly. So, it's a societal attitude as well. When people around you, when your family, friends, relatives are going to tell you to, yes. this is how it is going to be, you go with the same expectations and not actually exactly. questioning the system. Yeah, exactly. So you probably sort of went with the same sort of an expectations. Yeah, so I understand. Exactly. Um, could you sort of explain what went on with Nicholas's birth? Um, you know, you went into, was he born in 2019 or was he born just before? No, he, <laughs> he was born in 2018 and he was born the last Saturday of 2018, 29th of December. And um, my gynecologist, actually, my labor started, I think, 
earlier, before actually my contractions and my surges started. Mm-hmm. I remember I went for, um, because in Belgium, when you enter the last month of pregnancy, you have to go or you have to see a health professional every week. Mm-hmm. So I would go, I had gone to the hospital and I was supposed to have uh, an appointment with the monitor, how, like the heart, the, the fetus. Yes, yes, exactly, to see how the baby was doing. And uh, the the gynecologist that was there um, told me, oh, based on your file, the baby is estimated to be uh, big, something that I would uh, I would hear at every ultrasound. So I would uh, um, definitely recommend you start talking about an induction with your gynecologist. Oh, wow. Okay. This is what he said. He wasn't the doctor that was attending me throughout my pregnancy. He was just the doctor that was there. It was uh, 26th of, of uh, December, so second day of Christmas. Sure. So he said, um, I would definitely recommend an induction. I was 31, 39 weeks and one day pregnant. I wasn't wow. like my due date hadn't passed yet. And I kind of looked at my husband and I said, I don't think my doctor is still on vacation. I don't think it's necessary yet. And he left. And then he came back with a midwife and he kind of, I don't, I don't want to use the word cursed, but this is how it felt. He mm. didn't give me a choice. He said, I will, uh, I want to perform a vaginal examination. Oh, wow. So at that point, and he could actually, and he, I remember him telling me, but you, you are having contractions. You don't feel any of this. So he knew that my labor was ongoing. He, mm. Yes. And, uh, um, you know, when, when the doctor comes to you and he is so passive aggressive, I, I kind of felt that I couldn't read deny I couldn't I couldn't deny what he was saying like I this had to be done so it's he also did a bit perform. of a power struggle right because he, exactly. knew he definitely wanted to exactly. do it and you were feeling vulnerable and you were like okay if he's going to say this and I'm going to exactly say and this. back back in the days I, I didn't know what could happen from my vaginal examination so late in pregnancy mm-hmm. so probably because I was already um three centimeters dilated probably he induced me or he, he, yeah, he accelerated my labor. So two days later, my water broke uh, at four o'clock in the morning. Although I had the feeling that I would deliver on Saturday. I was, I kept on saying that week, I will deliver on Saturday. Don't plan anything. <laughs> there was something and, in uh, you that was telling you. That yes, you there was something, that, that something mm. in the air, I guess. And at four o'clock in the morning, my water would uh, broke and uh, I took a shower, remember, I ate because my midwife had told me, eat before you go to the hospital, you might not be able to eat afterwards. So I had, I ate breakfast and around half past five, we went to the hospital. We were both really relaxed. We were laughing. We were joking. And I wasn't, I wasn't feeling any surges or I wasn't feeling any strong surges. I could feel something. Something was going on. Yeah. Yeah. Something was going on. And but it wasn't that, let's say, intense. <laughs> right. So I entered. I we entered the, the. I remember we entered the corridor, and there was a midwife there cleaning the floor past five in the morning. <laughs> and uh, my husband said, "Oh, my my wife is in labor," uh, and I was having a contraction at that moment. 
So she just showed us in room. She said, uh, go ahead. She told me I have to vaginal examine you to admit you at the hospital um, because my hospital had the policy if you are below five centimeters and you're not in active labor, you're not supposed to be admitted. So I was indeed already at five centimeters. And I remember her giving uh, a lavender oil for massaging my back to my husband. And she said, here is some oil and make yourself comfortable and she left (laughs) okay so she basically just left the both of you to be and then yeah yeah yes exactly and the room that we were in was totally different from what we expected to have because uh before uh, my due date we had done a tour in the hospital and we were shown a room where a bath was there you know Mm. uh, a rebozo was there and other ways of um dealing with pain or like mm, the intensity mm. of labor mm. but the room that we were given had only a yoga ball and a bed right. right that's about it yeah yeah that's about it so we were left alone uh but apparently my labor progressed really really uh fast that's and okay. intense so i would start after i don't know an hour or so from what my husband says from what Kun says i would start shaking um, I had to vomit. So it was all the signs, you know, that I was entering transition. transition. The end was Correct. near. Correct. And I would, I remember myself on the yoga ball because my midwife had told me, try to let gravity do its work. It's yeah. Yes, exactly. And I remember sitting on the yoga ball with my head on the, on the bed and visualizing the rose, mm-hmm. the opening rose. Yeah. Yes. And around something to seven for seven i think i said i cannot do this anymore i i'm i'm really exhausted it, it's really hurting and i asked for an epidural but it was saturday morning during the, <laughs> during christmas holidays which meant that there was no anesthesiologist available so they had to call somebody to come to the hospital also at seven o'clock in the morning there was a shift in the midwives um and by the time the, the anesthesiologist walked into my room to give me an epidural, he said, but your contractions, because I had to have a fit on monitor as well. So from the moment you are at the hospital, you have a fit on monitor because the midwife is so not there wired. with you. Yeah, exactly. So I was wired. wired. Yes, mm. exactly. I wasn't, I could be mobile because they had the, you know, the thing. That you could actually walk a, around. Yeah. Yes, exactly. You could walk around, yeah. But I couldn't do whatever. I had to be still, I had to have a fit on monitor on me. Mm-hmm. And uh, the assistant anesthesiologist came and he said, but why do you want an epidural? Your contractions come every minute. And I remember myself in this fuzziness of transition asking, what does that mean? And he said, oh, nothing, nothing. It's fine. I'll give you an epidural. So I was giving him an epidural. And five minutes later, another midwife came and she said, I have to vaginally examine you. I gave my consent. And she said, but you're already at nine centimeters. Why did you get an epidural? And I was like, yeah. nobody told me. Yeah. <laughs> nobody, nobody told me that told I was that close. Correct. Exactly. Yeah. So afterwards, what happened practically, um, and I had, uh, 10 minutes after the epidural uh, was administered, I had really pushing feeling. And I remember telling the midwife, I need to go to the, I need to go to the toilet. And she told me, you are not allowed to. Now you're supposed to lay in bed because you've got an epidural. So 
my labor probably stopped. And uh, it was a busy morning at the hostel. A lot of deliveries were going on and, and one gynecologist available. So at one point I started feeling my contractions back, which I mm. thought it was a good idea. And I remember the gynecologist coming in and I told her, ah, I feel my contractions. This is a good thing, right? And without asking me, she increased the dose of my epidural. So she, I was numbed from my back down. I couldn't feel anything. Uh, after one hour and a half or so, mm. she entered the room um, with the midwife. The doctor entered the room with the midwife and she said, now it's time to push. I was like, okay. <laughs> okay, yeah. Everything was sort of, in a way, orchestrated to a point where nobody exactly. listening to you. They sort exactly, of like things would happen to me mm. without me being in control of these things. Mm-hmm. So I, things were just happening to me. And I wouldn't be asked what I wanted. Did I want this for my body and etc. So yeah, the pushing stage was <laughs> was really. I don't know if it's funny, but now afterwards, it seems it seems funny to me because she would practically. Pract- my midwife had told me it's going to be like a football game prepare yourself if you want them to be silent you can tell them be silent she said i had a, i had a pregnant woman that she said she practically shouted shut up <laughs> it was that busy so she would like chant me and say and say some things and at one point i remember the adrenaline was so high in the room because I couldn't feel how I should push. I was totally numb from the bitural. But because you uh, already I, had the pushing sensation, they should have just listened exactly, to you. Exactly. But imagine between the pushing sensation that I had and the time of Nicholas, be, Nicholas being born, it was four hours. Wow. Can you imagine like how much my labor had stopped? Four hours. It was at seven o'clock in the morning in the pushing sensations. And Nicholas was born 10 past 11. So we are talking about a lot of time in, in between. And so I couldn't feel anything. So the adrenaline was, was so high in the room that I needed to scream, not because I was in pain, but it was a way for me to, to release just, yeah. yeah, to release all the energy, all this yeah. energy in the room. And I remember the midwife saying to me, don't shout. I was like, everybody is shouting in this room. Am I the only person that is not supposed to shout? So uh, I eventually I delivered. I was given an episiotomy as my a midwife uh, <laughs> predicted. Mm. Yes, without actually being asked. I didn't even feel it, but uh, Kuhn told me at one point that he saw some blood flying. And he asked uh, the doctor, why, why did you cut her? Why did you cut her? And uh, the explanation was that, you know, my pelvic floor was a bit narrow etc so i had to be cut but afterwards i understood that this is standard practice all this and afterwards for me you know i could or i could justify more but afterwards after the baby was born supposedly i delivered at a baby friendly hospital Mm. and that i was supposed to be given one hour skin to skin but because it was so busy in the maternity ward I was just allowed to have 10 minutes skin to skin with my newborn. They, they just dressed him up afterwards and I had to shower. So I delivered 10 past 11 and by quarter past 12, I was downstairs at my room. So everything happened so fast. 
definitely not the way. Yeah, they probably just did not even give you some time to swallow everything and to say exactly. I, 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 I was still really uh, like from the withdrawal, from from giving birth, from oxytocin. I was still fuzzy. I like I remember my delivery as a mist, a fog, foggy, foggy moment from all the things happening at the same time. I it was so foggy, like I couldn't, I didn't even, I remember uh, leaving the room where I delivered and having a baby in front of me and looking at Nicholas saying, oh my God, this is my baby. Like I didn't even have time to realize I, you know, I delivered this baby. Yeah. Yeah. And in all of this, how is it for Kuhn? Because, you know, for him, it must have also been a bit more like, why is this all so dramatic? Like, what's going on? Why are people talking? Why are people screaming? What's going on? Like, you know? Yeah, for him as well, you know, as me and for him as well, because we would listen what other couples would say. We thought that this is normal. We thought way more terrifying stories um, of deliveries. So we both thought that this is how a delivery should happen or should yeah. go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but afterwards, as we, because this delivery, it took me a very long time to understand the impact of this delivery on me as a mom, as and on my psychology. I had a very difficult postpartum period. I also had uh, troubles connected with my baby, uh, feeling I don't know safe in in my role as a mom or connected with my newborn, etc. So afterwards we when we discussed how this delivery went and what impact it had on me then we both realized you know this is not this is not how the birth of a baby should happen and um i i i i didn't even understand the impact or how a big drama this because you know you talk with other women and you compare your birth story with other women and you're like ah oh, yeah but not that many that, like interventions happen, but not that many. I didn't deliver with a cesarean. But yeah. that's not the point. That's not the point. See, you sort of like benchmark yourself to a lowest expectation. Okay, at least it wasn't exactly. a cesarean. But that shouldn't exactly. be the case. It should be about, was the mother, you know, feeling comfortable, safe. Respected. Uh, respected. Dignity. Exactly. I mean, was it a dignified birth? Was she heard? I think it makes a big difference for exactly. a good outcome when the mother or when did the I have a choice? Exactly. Yeah. But I, I, I didn't, I didn't know that. And in the beginning, you know, I would have a lot of people around me when I would start talking about um, not being really confident or not being really okay with, with uh, my delivery. I would have people. Uh, saying or gaslight me saying oh but you have a healthy baby but Gosh. this is this is not the most like this yeah. is not the outcome that we are striving for in in yeah. <laughs> 21st century uh, i would kind of dismiss the feeling and i would not recognize my trauma and this will of course uh, it became way worse and it took me a very long time to understand how traumatic this birth was for me mm. as a as a as Vasquez. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I remember though my midwife post afterwards in postnatal care, um, we were talking about my delivery and she really wanted how I was really passionate of going unmedicated. I was convinced that I could do it and I was so disappointed. I was feeling like a failure. Uh, I wasn't though supported at all. I was alone. I was left alone in the hospital 
to practically deliver a baby. And we would talk about my delivery. And then she said, Vasya, maybe you should go with this midwifery practice if there is a second baby mm. ever. So mm. she recommended another practice. She said, I know that I'm working against my own practice, but I think this practice will suit you will suit you more oh, and let's do home deliveries. Yeah, absolutely. Bless her. Yeah. Yes. Um, what I wanted to ask you is that I'm so sorry, Spasia. I mean, even when you're talking now, I can still feel the emotions that are coming out, <laughs> you know, with the way we are having this conversation. Mm. As much as yes. it's been three years, it's still... It's been three way. years, a lot yeah. of work. Yeah. But, you know, trauma is a trauma. And it's, it's not going to I have away, I have come... Yes, yeah. I have come in terms with how my first delivery went. Mm. I have accepted it. I accepted it. It's a it's a part of my story as a mom. But a trauma is a trauma and of course some emotions will be there. Of course. Yes. Of but course. it's still still really emotional for me. I remember the first time we met and I was talking about my birth story. I couldn't even finish it. I would I would need to cry. Yes. So I'm happy right now that I can actually narrate it without crying. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, that was our first conversation, just yes. as you mentioned, you know. Um, this was last year, and then you got in touch with me um, through another lovely doula. Um, you got to hear about me, and then you said, look, I couldn't actually prepare myself better last time because this time I definitely want to have a different birthing experience, a different um, experience prenatally and also empowered birthing experience and also to sort of settle in as a family I really like exactly. tools and that was a conversation that you and I had and I also remember where you couldn't finish your story you were in tears and you just said I just don't want that to repeat ever again yes and I'd like to be yes to better. anyone if I could but I yeah absolutely thank you to all of you my lovely listeners for tuning into my podcast I hope you found this episode informative. If you really like my podcast, then please do subscribe for more such episodes. Please feel free to share the podcast with your family and friends. And this will help others know that this podcast exists. Thank you once again and see you all next time.